Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today we have several special guests. And rather than me boring you with introductions, I'm going to let everyone go around the table here, the virtual table, and introduce themselves. And we're going to talk about the Texas blizzard of 2021. Plenty to unpack from an EMS perspective. Always good from an after-action standpoint to, to step back and look at what you did right, what you did wrong, where the unexpected problems came from and we've really got a lot to talk about from across the state and so starting us off we're joined by Rob Dixon my medical director Casey was going to let me introduce myself but I messed it up the first time so thanks for having me Casey I'm, I'm really glad to be part of this and and kind of share our experience with the rest of the state we got some other folks from around the state everybody t- take a turn introduce yourselves and uh, tell the listeners what your current role is basically where you're located and what population area you serve. Uh, I guess I'll lead it off. Jeff, go ahead and go first. Howdy, y'all. This is uh, Jeff Jarvis. I'm the EMS Medical Director for Williamson County Area, Williamson County Area, Williamson County EMS and Marble Falls Area EMS. We're suburban Austin. Um, not to be confused with uh, all of the problems that emanate from Travis County. And then I'm also an emergency physician in suburban Austin. I've got to let JR reply next so he can uh, defend himself. Well, you don't need to have your the Austin problems come up to you. You'll create your own problems all by yourselves just fine. Uh, so I'm uh, J.R. Pickett. I'm the uh, acting system medical director for Austin Travis County EMS system. And uh, so we uh, serve uh, the entire population of Travis County. So we've got about 130,000 call volume over about 1,000 square miles here. And uh, I also have a podcast on which I make fun of Jeff Jarvis a lot. And lastly, we've got to uh, get some Northern rep- representation. Uh, Veer, introduce yourself to the audience, please. Yeah, hey, thanks. Uh, I seem to be the only one without a podcast, and I'm more than happy to not spend my time uh, making one. I'm Veer Vitalani. I am the uh, System Medical Director and Chief Medical Officer for uh, MedStar Mobile Healthcare. We are the self-operating public utility model EMS system for the Fort Worth, Texas and surrounding region. Got about 450 square miles and a million plus lives in our service area. And uh, thanks for having me. Let's just remember this uh, rounding order for the rest of the questions, because really these questions are going to be for everyone, because everyone's had a little bit of varying degrees of experience here and everybody has their own story to tell. So let's just start it off with a simple one, and that is the number one challenge that you face during the weather crisis. And I'll let, I'll let Rob lead it off and just kind of pass it off in the same order, everyone, and, and hit on some of the, 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 the biggest challenges that, that you saw in your service yeah. or in the, in the service area. This could go 100 different directions. Yeah, thanks, Casey. I mean, I'll, I'll kind of echo what before we, we started taping, Jared was talking about that this is kind of a disaster that came in stages. We saw it coming. Uh, but really, I would say it was kind of ice, then power, then water, and, and kind of in that order for us. And then sadly, when all those, the, this cascade of events, you know, the ice that made it very difficult operationally to get around uh, and to, we could prepare for that as best we could. Uh, but the power, I think, was a little unforeseen. We, we knew we'd have some power issues, uh, but we did not know that it would be so widespread 
and caused the cascade. No, I don't think anybody, I didn't see the water thing coming, uh, but it really affected our system uh, adversely. It took out two of the six of our receiving hospitals. So it took out about a third of our hospital uh, receiving capacity for the entire disaster. Huge. Jeff, what'd you guys see? So I kind of like the way that Rob broke that down because I think those are the fundamental problems. So instead of just saying what Rob said, I'll talk about how that manifested for us. And it manifested in primarily four ways or groups of people. One is the same folks that we run into problems with every disaster with. These are the oxygen dependent people who have concentrators that demand electricity. So when there's no electricity, there's no oxygen, um, they either panic or just get outright hypoxic and both of those things are bad. The second group is our dialysis patients. They can't, because of the roads, they can't get to dialysis. And even if they could get to dialysis, dialysis can't get to dialysis. So the outpatient clinics are closed or they just can't get water or they can't get dialysate, which was a first. I'd never seen that. The next was um, hospice patients. Um, apparently hospice nurse nurses can't do pronouncements unless they're there in person. So we got a lot of those calls coming into the 911 system. Um, we also obviously had the same problem everybody else did getting medics to call. So we had a huge increase in our call volume. We about tripled it. Um, and we just couldn't serve all of the 911 needs. So we had to do some 911 call triage. And then the final thing is for all of these same reasons, all of our hospitals were completely overwhelmed. Um, the emergency departments were absolutely devastated. And I think it's a really interesting case study of what happens when you slam the back door to a hospital. They could not, it wasn't that the, um, there was an increase in the volume coming in. They could handle that. Most of them were low acuity. It's just that they couldn't get people out the back door. So we ended up in my community hospital with 20 beds in the emergency department. We were holding 21 admitted patients. Yeah, I think it's important for the listeners outside of Texas to to kind of understand what um, what how this this w weather event. This wasn't just like a little bit of snow or um, or a little bit of ice uh, like you run up north. Now, Central Texas is no stranger to, to ice storms and uh, cold weather, but typically it's short lived. It usually, only lasts a day or so. Uh, so we get an ice storm uh, every year or so and shuts down the city for a day, uh, and then it melts and everything is is fine and back normal. So here we had nearly a week of sustained below freezing temperatures, and the houses are not built for that. the The infrastructure is not built for that, and we don't have plows and sand trucks and salt trucks uh, like uh, like they do up north. So what first happened was we got freezing rain that coated everything. It coated all the branches of all the trees, kind of weighing them down, and then we got snow with high winds which takes down all these trees and and uh, taking down power lines and and so forth but the the ice stayed ev through everywhere for like five straight days uh, with additional freezing rain piling on top of that so the roads never really cleared up it was just solid sheet of ice everywhere that you went uh, for days and days uh, until we finally had to, had the big thaw now as far as the infrastructure goes um, the uh, the 
with the power grid, I mean, you might expect that power lines are going to come down. It's going to be a problem, but it was much bigger than that. Uh, so the, the the gauges and lines at the gas-fired and coal-fired power plants froze, and so a lot of those that capacity dropped. Um, the wind turbines supply about eight percent of our winter electrical electrical load in Texas. Um, they're not winterized, so about half of them froze. Uh, even um, when the the dam uh, the gates are operated electrically and they got stuck in the down position and so the water level dropped and we lost water pressure the the generators weren't uh, uh didn't kick in and weren't working because of the cold uh a lot of the, the uh, fuel gelled up um in that cold and so then we lost water well then the nuclear power plant loses water and that trips offline like it's supposed to uh, for safety and so we lost uh, a nuclear power uh, generation source so that there was no area of our power supply that wasn't affected even solar uh, because of precipitation that was caked on top of it couldn't produce much of anything uh, jason and, be sure to hit the our issue would we just can't ask for help we can't get it from anywhere else um well yes because we privatized and went offline from uh, the national grid texas is effectively isolated uh, from a lot of the other country uh, to a lot of the rest of the country to um, uh, to back up that uh, that grid. So uh, we uh, got rolling blackouts statewide uh, by ERCOT that kind of oversees and, and wholesale sells power throughout the, the state, um, which was instrumental because they were very, very close, like minutes away from you know true forced like collapse of the system and uh, would have been a much bigger deal had they not uh, taken those steps. Uh, so, you know, every bit was an issue. So we, our stations lost power and water. A lot of people's uh, homes, our medics, uh, they had pipes break. They didn't have power. They didn't have heat. The hospitals that had heat uh, running on boiler systems, they lost their heat as well, um, as well as uh, when, when their water went out. And so not only are they having people pooping in bags and kitty litter and so forth, um, but they can't run dialysis. Uh, they had impacts to lab services. Um, Epic, one of the major computer uh, networks, went down at one of our hospital networks here. Uh, and there really weren't any hospitals in our area that were unaffected. Uh, most of the hospitals we had uh, had at least impact of water service, if not heat. Um, so early on, one of our big two trauma centers downtown uh, went offline because they lost their power, lost their heat, lost their water. And they said, okay, we're on internal disaster, reroute all EMS traffic. Well, at that point, we had already said we're transporting the closest facility. Uh, the next closest facility that was catching a lot of the business for South Travis County is a very small hospital. It's like, you know, a doctor and six nurses, you know, it's really tiny. And, and uh, so definitely not able to take that load. But the other hospitals were in the same position. So we just forced them back open and said, look, it is what it is. You're getting the patients um, and you're going to have to take them. Uh, now, the city of Austin, for its uh, city vehicle, uses biodiesel. Uh, we are very environmentally friendly. Um, and when a fire truck drives by, we like the smell of french fries. Um, but biodiesel gels at 15 degrees. So uh, we lost a lot of our fueling stations uh, citywide. And uh, additionally, the power uh, at, those, uh, at a lot of the stations went down as well. So all of a sudden, we went from... 
uh, a whole bunch of fueling stations across our service area to having like one place where all the emergency vehicles could fuel. Biodiesel gels at 15 degrees. I am now officially smarter. Not a, I'm not a biodiesel expert. And it smells That's, like McDonald's French fries. I, I knew What's that, the downside? I did know that part, but I mean, from an, you know, that actually you know, from an unexpected problem standpoint, that's one that I never would have seen. Yeah, how do you see that one coming? I don't know how you plan for that one. 15 degrees, just not not normal. Um, how about you guys up north, Beer? What what were challenges that you y'all saw? What about you know, unexpected problems? Tag on to the end. Yeah, I mean, what, what more is there to say? You know, obviously, uh, we had a lot of similar issues. Um, you know, our, our big disaster actually happened um, before the rest of the disaster with our large MCI uh, pile up on a <clears throat> on an express lane in our one of our busiest freeways in, in 35 that obviously uh, transects the, the state here. Um, we had, you know, uh, 100 cars or so and, and a number of people injured, uh, including uh, six fatalities uh, in the end. Um, and, and, you know, that that sort of caught us all a little bit by surprise. I think we were already in winter preparation mode, um, but I think the rest of the state probably wasn't. And so this was uh, sort of the day or two before, uh, you know, temperatures had dropped below freezing at night, but then would, would thaw in the morning. Um, and so this was early morning traffic where, um, you know, there was a, a, an accident followed by uh, multiple people um, slamming into the, the back and, and causing quite a large pileup, um, you know, and it, it turned into a full MCI pretty quickly uh, with us deploying our AMBUS and, and uh, rotating out, <clears throat> you know, a good chunk of our ambulance fleet. Um, simply to pick up patients and, and uh, you know, multi-load and, and transport them out. Um, and then before we even had time to, to debrief or um, even have an after action, uh, we got hit with the big uh, actual winter storm. And so a lot of the same problems um, as, uh, as um, Jeff and JR mentioned, you know, most of ours were in relation to power. Um, you know, the, the uh, planned ERCOT outages uh, ended up lasting for, um, you know, basically how it worked was if you had, if you had power, then you were probably going to keep power. And if you didn't have power, um, you weren't going to get power until it was was back online. And so, um, you know, thankfully, most of our hospitals were, were spared from the power um, cuts. Um, but the the frozen pipes, the, the natural gas breaks and, and a lot of the a lot of the issues. And, and you know, much like uh, JR mentioned, we've we've been a no divert system for the last 10, 15 years, um, with the one exception that if you are uh, in a full internal disaster, so much so that as a, as a hospital CEO, you believe it to be unsafe for you to accept any patients, then you can call me as the medical director. Um, and the, the way that you essentially have to prove it is by closing up your entire emergency department to all traffic, whether it be walk-in or ambulance traffic. Um, and, and historically, whether in a, a bad emergency situation or not, um, I usually have that conversation and then the hospital realizes that I guess maybe it's not that bad. Um, we won't close our front doors. Um, and so we ended up keeping most of them open to ambulance traffic. Um, but but a couple of our hospitals did uh, lose their CT scanners. A few of them lost their cath labs uh, and, and things due to natural gas leaks and, and other items. Um, and so we did have to, to sort of navigate our patients um, to other facilities. Thankfully, our, our hospitals are, are basically um, cohorted. We have four downtown and two up north, and that's pretty much it. Um, and so we, we were able to um, handle the load across the, the hospital networks that we had. Um, and then, uh, you know, our biggest other uh, sort of issue, uh, staffing actually maintained pretty well. You know, uh, again, we're a, um, we're a dynamic resource management sort of system. So we, we flex our number of available ambulances uh, day and night, week on week anyways. And so we put up pretty much our entire employee fleet in a nearby hotel. 
Um, and so we had good good attendance from work. We, we pretty much start and stop out of two stations. And so for the most part, um, it wasn't about people getting to individual uh, station houses. It was just getting into work and getting on the ambulance. Um, and, and so thankfully we um, managed to, to keep our staff up and then the volume, you know, still uh, overwhelmed us a little bit. And, and we ended up uh, essentially deploying our AMBUS for, for low acuity uh, pickups. Um, that was sort of our big uh, thing was we, we put most of our supervisors and critical care paramedics on fly cars, um, which we no don't normally uh, do uh, to respond to 911 calls. And we would just sort of tag our low acuity patients and let them know somebody would come in a big, big white school bus in the next hour and pick them up. And we would just pre-plan our routes and, and gather them up. But um, thankfully, we did not have to not respond to anyone. And we, we uh, managed to, to balance things effectively. Well, here I, I have two questions for you. Number one, if y'all have not seen the video of bystanders of that collision that Veer is, is talking about, you've got to see it. It is the most frightening thing you've ever seen. Um, semis running into the back of other vehicles at like 45 miles an hour. Um, it's absolutely horrendous. Um, Veer, you talked about your AMBUS. You dispatched it out for low acuity calls. How well does an AMBUS drive on icy roads? Uh, surprisingly well, apparently. Does it really? Um, yeah, you know, um, yeah. As far as I as far as I heard, we we did a pretty decent job with it, um, and so they, they didn't come into to very many issues at all. And Veer, did you take them all? Like, were these people that were stratified to go to one hospital, multiple hospitals, or are these like warming center patients where you're like, okay. This, this batch is the bus is going to go pick you up and your oxygen concentrator to take you to the warming center. Yeah, so it was really a hodgepodge of all of it. Um, essentially, you know, we, we dispatched our, all of our single unit uh, resources out to these patients and, and then they would make a determination about whether it was um, an actual medical call that needed to go to the hospital, which was actually a, a pretty, pretty high percentage of them, or if they were really just calling for cold and lack of power and needed to go to a warming center. Um, again, our, our main warming centers um, and our hospitals are all sort of centrally located. And so, um, you know, we were able to pick them all up and, and rather than overwhelm one hospital with quite literally a busload of patients, right. um, we were able to distribute them pretty evenly. We also, you know, there were um, some instances of interfacility transports. We, we did not shut those down, um, but, but because part of that is also um, transporting hospital patients out to to rehab facilities and, and LTACs and things like that. And so we would use the bus for that as well. After dropping off at the hospital, we would we would load up a handful of discharges and, and take them out, whether it's to the warming center or a, or a rehab LTAC, that sort of thing. Yeah, so that, that leads us in really to the next question pretty perfectly. And that's, you know, how we decide where these folks are going and how we get the, whether it's supervisor on, in a fly car, whether it's a, a truck, how are we getting folks from their homes to the right spot, hospital, warming center, you know, all these options tend to explode in situations like this. So you really just addressed how you guys did it, Veer. Uh, JR, Jeff, how did y'all address dispatch? Automated, real-time, direct, some combination of the two? How'd you get, how'd you get your medics in the right spots, get the patients in the right spots, especially with all, I think we all experienced, and beer sounds like probably the least, but we all had a bit of, uh, you know, partnership hospital disaster going on as well. So getting folks to the right spots in these situations can be really tough. Tell us, tell the listeners a little bit about how you did that. And Sure. Well, I'll start. I'll tell you that we, it sounds like Veer did a much better job than we did of 
making sure he was able to actually get some sort of EMS resource to every call. Um, we were having a great deal of problems getting to uh, getting to all of the calls. At one point, we just, well, at one point, one point was like three days. We just couldn't do it. We had more requests for service um, than we had resources. And in our system, our system is a very resource heavy system for our call volume. That never happens. And we just had too many demands. So we put, um, I went down and uh, sat on the dispatch floor, uh, pulled CAD up and helped us uh, triage calls. Initially, we started off by saying we were not going to respond at all to Omega level calls. Uh, we would stop responding to anything without a confirmed patient. So motor vehicle collisions, unless there was a confirmed patient, we weren't going. Uh, same thing with medical alarms. Um, and then we realized that that wasn't nearly enough to um, keep resources available. So we then went to, we're not going to dispatch any alpha through um, uh, Charlie level calls if we are below a certain uh, level in our system. So we don't have enough resources. Uh, that made me really nervous though, because as y'all all know, Charlie in particular can be just damn near anything. Um, so I sat there and I triaged the calls um, and we set up a rotation where either me or some of my uh, clinical practices staff sat there and helped uh, triage all of those calls. And we were right next to our dispatchers so rather than trying to talk to them over email or text them or phone call, we just looked over our shoulder and, and talked to them. So that worked fairly well for us. How about you guys, yeah. JR? It was, uh, so similar here in that um, we our, our call volume quadrupled and uh, that was uh, that was problematic. So for 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 actually a few days, we'd never had a point where there were not calls in the pending screen. Um, and it, that got as high as like 30 calls at one point uh, that were just pending a unit to be available uh, for uh, for them. So our system, uh, we use MPDS, we use uh, priorities one through five, where priority one is your highest priority, that's your cardiac arrest, your unconscious. Uh, priority five is your lowest priority. Uh, we kicked out the priority fives pretty quick um, and stopped responding to those. And and uh, we, were spent, we were sending first responders only on priority fours and then priority threes. Um, to to go out there and our first responders with our our fire departments which are largely bls uh they go out there to determine is their patient what's that particular need and can they uh hook them up with uh, uh with the right need uh the uh we also made immense use of our collaborative care communications center which are c4l this is our effort for et3 and what that does is you've got paramedics who are in the the comm center that uh, are looking at, uh, at calls and looking for ways to address calls other than sending an ambulance or sending people to the hospital and so we use that and telemedicine with our PA or with the docs on call to uh, talk with patients and and uh, uh, give better advice and, and maybe see how we could avoid uh, sending a, a resource or at least transporting that patient to the hospital and maybe more safely keep them at home. And we availed that for our first responders as well. So they would contact us and, and we could uh, we could give a little bit uh, better guidance there. And the C4L medics who I, I really can't 
speak, I can't speak well enough of them because they have very little doctrinal guidance on what they do and, and how to do it. And they were really creative and they were looking for calls like, you know, is this a call that we can potentially resolve with telemedicine? Um, now, uh, the terrain was uh, was tricky because if you look at eastern Travis County, it's kind of generally rolling hills. Western Travis County is hill country, so very steep hills. Uh, there were parts of our county that were just truly completely impassable and uh, and just inaccessible. And uh, even with four by four vehicles, um, even with tire chains, uh, so. Uh, at one point, we had a uh, we had a deceased patient, uh, and they called, and there was no way to get anyone to that to to that pe- person without a major rescue alarm, which we felt would be uh, probably not a good use of resources and not a not an appropriate risk for the responders to take simply to perform a pronouncement. So we hooked up one of the online medical control docs who performed the pronouncement via FaceTime, uh, and. Uh, that that was a new world for us, uh, but I mean, there were, it, it's not it's not just it's not justified to put a whole bunch of people together to do a major rescue alarm just to uh, to pronounce somebody. Um, we ran the same issue with uh, pronouncements that uh, was uh, mentioned earlier regarding hospice patients, uh, so we shifted that a bit. So for um, uh, if the hospice nurse called if we had a credible source that said, yes, we think this patient is deceased, then we would not send the usual alarm, uh, which would be an ambulance to commander and a, a first responder apparatus, uh, but instead would just send a single unit a- apparatus uh, for that. And we had single unit apparatus, uh, apparati, apparatuses, I don't know what you say. Um, we had them, our uh, community health paramedics, um, and uh, our district commanders, uh, uh, the uh, paramedic response units, and also a doc and a PA uh, going out in the field and just taking these calls and addressing these issues. Uh, The C4L helped to create a work list for the PA and the docs uh, so that we could uh, we know, all right, this, this is somebody who needs a new Foley catheter, then we could go out and do that and uh, have that on our list. But obviously we wouldn't respond out there and we wouldn't send an ambulance out there Uh, or uh, somebody who, uh, maybe they got looked at, and they've they've got a they've got a little laceration. We can send one of our uh, uh, docs or PA out to suture that up and take care of that. So we tried our best to to get out and uh, address problems in the field as much as possible because we're trying not only to save uh, our ambulances to keep them in service, but also to maintain the uh, the capabilities of the hospitals as well. Yeah, very similar here, Jr. I mean, we we kind of turned off the CAD like you guys early. Um, you know, we had triggers for it, so if we went below a level five in the county. So we had only five trucks where normally we have about thirty service in the county. Then we we turned on Medcom, which essentially only echoes and deltas. The highest level calls got got auto dispatched in the CAD. Everything else got put in the queue, reviewed by one of the chiefs, and then shipped back, either sorted there or shipped back to kind of do a telemedicine visit or whatever we needed to do to try to disposition the patient. Uh, what technology did you guys use? Like platforms to telemedicine, do you use FaceTime or? Uh, just FaceTime. Um, there's, we've been looking at, uh, at several different platforms for this, you know, things like Pulsera, uh, but of course, uh, the patient who doesn't have a provider at their side is not going to have that. Uh, so, uh, for, you know, for right now, it's, uh, it, it's just, it, it's just FaceTime and telephone. 
Yeah, we use Pulsera Patient. Um, we had a couple of people that had problems walking through it, but the vast majority of them that we really needed to like do a FaceTime with or a, a telemedicine visit with and follow them, i.e. we weren't able to access them, so we had to call them back. We did the Pulsera Patient with them where they could just you you send them an invite and they click on it and it downloads the app to their phone. So that was pretty helpful for us. That was a pretty small amount of patients though. The vast majority of them, you know, it was pretty easy to sort out. Are they warming patients? Are they, you know, do they need a resource? Uh, the other thing we did that typically in our county, every response, almost all of them get an ambulance and some piece of fire equipment, depending on, you know, how the response configuration is. Um, and early on, we turned that off and essentially tasked our, our fire departments. We have 13 of them with about another thousand providers um, to go out and, and, and answer those, you know, medical alarms and uh, lift assists and falls and MVCs with no reported injuries. So uh, that was kind of, what, you know, if we pivot to the lessons learned, one of the things is maybe our ask to those guys has not been enough. And we need to ask more kind of in anticipation uh, because we did have some fallouts on responses with those guys. Before we get to lessons learned, let's take a quick second just away from some of the operational stuff. Anybody have any uh, clinical curveballs uh, encountered, you know, from a real uh, clinical medicine standpoint, uh, hypothermia, carbon monoxide, that sort of thing. Anybody have any interesting cases they want to throw out there? Yeah, I, I had an interesting one, and it's interesting from a Texas standpoint. I think our our northern colleagues are not going to find this interesting at all. Um, we ran multiple carbon monoxide calls just like, you know, you would expect. But we had uh, what, as far as I can tell, was certainly my first true hypothermic cardiac arrest. We went out to do a transport two days earlier. The guy is an old cantankerous guy with full decision-making capacity and told us exactly what we could do with our offer to take him to a hospital. And we came back two days later and he was frozen to the ground. Uh, he had a pulse when we got there that didn't last very long. Um, and my crews called me. I had a, one of my supervisors in a fly car got there first he calls me and tells me basically, uh, Doc, I don't really have any experience with hypothermia. Can you walk me through this? So, well, that's great, dude. I'm just as Texan as you are. And then my ambulance got there and did the exact same thing. And I told him the same thing and we walked our way through it. Um, the real interesting thing though, is this guy, um, it was so cold there that he was really worried about his goat. So they had to work this code, this hypothermic code around a goat who was busy eating everything he could get his hands on, including our equipment. Now that, that the story became Texas real quick Very Texas. with the, I like it. it was hypothermia took us away from Texas, but the hungry goat brings us right back in. How can, can we talk about CO? I'm just going to kind of query the other uh, medical directors. Did you guys leave the CO patients if they were treated? I have one that was like a somewhat of a, a minor, you know, like six people in a family, but fire had gotten there, put them appropriately on auction. All the patients were asymptomatic. Do you guys take refusals on those? Yeah, we pivoted to that really early on um, because all of our CO poisonings were multiple patients and, uh, and we had dozens of these incidents. So our previous one was, well, if they're 
if there are levels over 5%, then uh, then it mandates uh, transport. We just stopped doing that. So if your level was um, below 25% and you didn't have any neurologic symptoms, then we could just treat you on scene till your, uh, till your uh, symptoms are gone and level was below 15% and then take the refusal. Uh, so that is one way to really preserve resources when you have a whole lot of that because um, effectively you can have one ambulance, maybe a first responder apparatus providing that oxygen and, and uh, it leads to a longer on scene time, but it helps the hospitals on that end to not bring seven people in simultaneously uh, that uh, need to get checked in and, and takes, uh, takes a load off of them and takes a load off of additional transport units as well. Yeah, we, we did sort of the same, you know, we did have um, our, our big CO poisoning was a, a four person um, multi arrest basically from carbon monoxide, three of them did fine, thankfully, and, and one didn't but um, the, the majority of ours were were alarms without symptoms or um, the really bad ones. Excellent. Well, it's all been really informative. And, you know, as any weather event like this goes and I, I feel like my sh small amount of experience in this tends to always be hurricane related so we're 180 degrees fully from that but anytime we have you know discussion like this and really this is sort of an informal kind of after action there always is the you know the lessons learned question and then the anticipation for future events you know what changes that you're going to make to try to prevent you know some of the pitfalls or some of the missteps that you made so let's just go around the virtual table, Rob. You can start us off and, and uh, everybody hit a lesson learned and, and maybe a potential anticipated change from sure. this event. Sure. A couple things. I'll, I'll just start with or, or I'll do ops. You know, from us, I think everybody did the same. They brought their people to work early anticipating that they weren't going to be in. But one of the things we, we learned that we didn't do well uh, was people – left their families at home ill-prepared. They prepared them for one day and not five days. So we really had people at work worried about their families at home. So one of the things kind of from our early um, hot wash of this is to make essentially a family preparedness card, a checklist for them, you know, like we'd give to a patient. You know, do you have f three days of meds? Do you have this lined up? Do you have that lined up? Uh, do you have a gas gassed up car? You have did you leave your spouse with money i mean it seems simple but it's amazing you know people do not function really well at work if they're worried about their families they're worried about their pets pets is a big issue for us uh, my son was uh, is a paramedic with a different service and he sat out the storm as well dog sitting about six of our employees dogs so it looked like animal house over there it's crazy um, the other thing, uh, and I'll give a shout out to James Campbell, our chief, is something, I don't know if you guys have heard of this, he, he used them up in his previous job as, uh, up in Salina, Hugo grips. These are the, the little uh, golf spikes, I guess, you just you put on your, you put over your boots, and they were just invaluable to our employees and really probably saved us a lot of lost time and injuries from slips and trips because, I mean, it was super hazardous out there. So this and, – and it was crazy. I, I think our safety guy found these on Amazon for 4 bucks a pair and just went out and bought a couple hundred of them. So anybody know Hugo Grips? I think we'll put a picture in the call notes just because it's got a cool name, and I thought that's a pretty cool idea. Yeah, how about, how about you, Jeff? Lesson learned, anticipation for the future? 
Yeah, I think there are a couple of things. Y'all mentioned, um, either you mentioned this or Veer mentioned it, you put everybody up in a hotel. We actually thought of that, but we thought about it too late, and all of the hotels were already full. Um, so one of the things that I would like to see if we can do is get a contract with some hotels for a right of first refusal um, <clears throat> in disasters. Uh, so we also need to, in addition to doing the normal stuff of making sure that we have shelters with electricity for our oxygen concentrators and making sure we have plans to um, add in generators for some outpatient dialysis clinics and have um, routes available to make sure we can get staff in. Um, we implemented a process, y'all mentioned some of these, but we're going to, we started doing this. I actually was just winging this from the dispatch center on the fly and decided we probably ought to operationalize it into a protocol where not only are we having our first responders respond to 911 calls when there's no ambulance, but I'll have them call me. We do a consult and I have them obtain a refusal, even for patients who need to go to the hospital. Um, I basically get a, an encouraged refusal and then we offer them a courtesy ride in the fire engine to the hospital. And the reason we're doing that is because the best I can tell is it is um, against multiple dishes regulations to transport a patient in something other than an ambulance. So we would never do that. But what we did is got a refusal and then just gave them a ride in a fire truck. Uh, because at that point they weren't a patient. So we're going to operationalize that. Um, and then I think the other thing that we noticed a lot of um, us doing, we're probably going to try to figure out a way to work better with our hospice agents. I think I did pronouncements on, I don't know, 20, 25 patients in about a day and a half, which is really unusual for us. Uh, well, Actually, I've never done pronouncements on hospice patients before. So we'll work with our hospice patients and come up with a process where if they can't get out to the patient, we'll be happy to do it, but they need to send us some data elements and assure us that their physician will be signing the death certificate and that they'll be taking care of the funeral home arrangements. So I think those are the main things that, uh, that we're thinking about. Oh, I'm sorry. The last thing is we really need to work better with our hospitals um, when they are all absolutely overwhelmed and can't get anybody in or out. Um, I'm not sure what the answer is when you can't drive uh, safely on the roads. I don't know what the answer is, uh, but we need to come up with something because we were really hurting our hospitals. Yeah, I don't know about you, Jeff, but here in Montgomery County or really in the greater Houston area, all the private services that were not 911 just said, nope, not, not, res not responding. So no one could get yeah, moved. I know. I'm, I'm sure it was like that everywhere else. It was crazy. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, I am, I can't blame them. Um, we were refusing to transfer patients anywhere. We would take, um, I had probably the, the hardest decision I had was uh, a neonatologist called me. He had come into an outside hospital for the delivery of uh, a term infant, six weeks old, I'm sorry, six weeks, six hours old with uh, nasty uh, meconium staining. And he wanted to get him downtown. And I'm like, dude, I agree. The kid would be much better downtown, but he's not going to be much better dead in a ditch with my dead paramedics. So no, I'm not going to do it. Um, he got kind of pissy with me and I'm said, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just not worth the risk. Um, 
So I think we probably need, again, I'm not going to do it, but I think we probably need to do a better job communicating with our hospital colleagues to let them truly understand why we're refusing these transfers. It's not because we're lazy. It's not because uh, we're being intentionally argumentative. But I think in general, unless you do EMS medicine, you dramatically underestimate the risk involved with transport, whether it's with lights and sirens on clean roads or certainly with helicopters. Um, if you ask the average sending physician about the risk of putting somebody in a helicopter, they're going to think it doesn't exist. And I think all of us are very well aware that that risk is there. Um, and then you throw in inclement weather and it gets much worse. How about y'all up north, Veer? Lessons learned, anticipations for the future? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the one other big thing I, I really want to point out is our our operations folks just did a phenomenal job with, with all the pivoting and, and stuff like that. And honestly, you know, uh, especially given some history here, like uh, I think the, the clinical and operational side worked really well together to, to pivot a lot of the, um, the response models and, and everything else. And, and you know, in a, in a system like ours where we have very clearly delineated responsibilities between clinical and operations, it, it's, it's nice to be able to work so seamlessly in, in really bad times of disaster like this, especially disasters on top of disasters on top of other disasters, it seems sometimes. Um, you know, I, I think some of the changes that we um, implemented uh, sort of were based in things that we've always uh, talked or thought about doing. So, um, you know, we've never had a fly car uh, process really, not at least for the 911 side, but it's definitely, um, you know, opened some avenues for things that we might be able to uh, look at in the future. We, ha we had actually just started a, a tiered response uh, pilot for uh, BLS ambulances. Um, and so actually that, that actually proved to be extremely useful because we were able to put up um, extra ambulances on the streets. And, and since those are responding to a majority of our um, you know, lower, lower acuity medical motor vehicle accidents, we were able to keep a lot more units available for, for some of this other stuff. But, um, you know, it, it's funny when I, when I talk to colleagues of mine across the state for things like this, I, if anything, I almost feel like I, I probably should have done a lot more myself, um, in terms of some of the, some of the, uh, modifications and, and involvement and things, but, um, you know, it's, uh, each, each, um, exercise or each activity like this, uh, lends itself to the future, and uh, I think we're all better prepared for whatever next comes our way. Wrap us up, JR. What are you guys going to uh, anticipate for the future? What are you, gonna, what are you buying? What, what protocol are you changing uh, based, on, based on the last week, week and a half? You know, um, much like when we, uh, when Mark and I took on the public health authority role in October of uh, 2019, uh, I think that we're going to have a, an ice storm clause in our contract next time <laughs> uh so in, in addition to the pandemic clause um so a few a few takeaways uh we know dialysis is going to get hit and and that's going to be a problem uh so we got um a supply of kxalite from our hospital partners and we were going around to these dialysis patients that were out of dialysis and they were fluid overload but fluid overloaded but not showing evidence of hyperkalemia on ekg and giving them a dose of kxalate to get to buy them a day or two before they could uh, before where they'd uh, really need dialysis. Um, and jury's still out on whether or not KXLate actually lowers potassium, but it what it does do is causes a fierce osmotic diarrhea and, uh, and that offloads fluid from the patient uh, fairly effectively uh, and, uh, and quickly. Uh, they don't like it, but when you don't have any dialysis, then, then that's a potential uh, help there. Um, 
Hey, Jason, let me uh, interrupt you one just on the issue of KX Lite. I think all of us are a bit skeptical on KX Lite, but just to give you an idea, I, I didn't realize this, but because of this disaster, I learned that there is a new version of this out there um, called Lokelma. It's a sodium zirconium cyclosilate. Um, Lokelma is the thing. And I did a quick literature search, and it actually seems to... Uh, one, we know it actually does reduce potassium levels, and I'm not sure we can say the same very much about uh, KXLate, and it doesn't have any of the side effects. Um, it seems to be relatively affordable, so just wanted to throw that out there. Lokelma is an alternative. Well, that that may do the thing for the uh, uh, for the potassium, but the, we want to get rid of fluid. And short of leeches, there's not a lot of way other ways to get it out of a patient who doesn't have functioning kidneys. So the uh, that osmotic diarrhea is helpful in in offloading that uh, uh, that fluid load that the patient. And I'm I'm sorry, the mechanism is the same um, as uh, Kaxalate. So they're pooping it out. Yes, um, the Lokelma, There's a couple. There's uh, another one that we uh, that we looked at too, but it only caused diarrhea in like four percent of patients. And we're like, well, we want we want a pretty reliable one. We need to get some fluid out. Uh, similarly, with uh, diabetics, a lot of them who got separated from their medications, their refrigeration went out. They moved to shelter with family or some or to uh, one of the warming shelters. Then uh, having insulin is helpful to uh, to dose them with insulin or give them a supply. We were doing a lot of that. Our chip medics were uh, were doing a lot of that. Um, so uh, the other is uh, transporting in non-standard vehicles. Started doing that pretty early on, just like you, um, using uh, fire trucks, four by fours, uh, chip vehicles. I mean, you know, I even transported a few patients uh, in my vehicle just to to get them to where they needed to be, and also proving uh, transport to destinations other than hospital emergency departments. So uh, warming centers, and once the emergency dialysis center came online, then we could transport directly there uh, as well. I think the biggest take home for us is, um, and uh, in, in lessons learned, and I think places where we fell down was um, we, did, we didn't have the winter boxes that we used to have. We used to have these boxes at the stations that had uh, some MREs, uh, some water, rock salt, yak tracks, uh, stuff like that for winter and um, had stuff. So if the medic was stuck at the station for uh, a few days and they, they'd have some you know, some niceties, they'd have some food, uh, that kind of thing. And those went away uh, some years ago and could have used them here. Um, feeding was a, was a problem. Of course, everything was closed and even the EMS rooms of the hospitals were pretty picked over. We had medics who didn't have a proper meal for three days and uh, they were uh, they were stuck at work. They were, or, or they were just continuing to work because other medics could not physically get into work. And um, the EMS association, or very early on, uh, like in day one, rented out hotel rooms for people, uh, which was just fantastic. And uh, they helped to work on getting food to uh, out to the crews. So having a plan for that emergency feeding to start in the beginning of your disaster and not as late as, as we had, it would be good. Um, also, you, you've got people in your organization that have uh, four-wheel drive vehicles and that happened on an ad hoc basis, uh, again, through the association, uh, but also district commanders and and, um, and personnel that, that would go pick people up from home and, and bring them to work and, and uh, uh, 
vice versa. And uh, also the, the Austin Disaster Recovery Network was working with the Austin 4x4 Club or something like that to, to help hospital personnel get to and from work. Um, but I, I would set that system up uh, in advance so that you can pull the trigger on that. And you know, folks who have uh, among your ranks that are willing to, to jump in and help out that got 4x4s can just help get people to and from work. Um, and uh, the, uh, yeah, the, a few other things like the biodiesel issue was uh, not expected at all. Um, but uh, also having a, a central repository of information for certain things, like if you have a, a Facebook page that's just internal to uh, employees of, uh, of your organization where you can put updates, uh, one thing of which stations have water where people can go and take a shower. Um, and uh, where, uh, where food is getting dropped off, like uh, we got some from a restaurant, brought it to a hospital and then put the word out like, hey, you've got tacos at, at this hospital emergency department. And so um, being, being able to use that network to, to for, uh, so uh, folks can just take care of a lot of their, uh, their basic needs. Um, and as was mentioned before, the lies medics were coming to work and they're leaving their husband or wife at home, uh, taking care of the kids and broken pipes and no heat and uh, no power and, and no internet and, and all of that. Um, so just having that focus, um, that, that, that focus on those, uh, on your, your people and build out those systems, talk with them, build out those systems in advance. So you can pull that trigger on day one. Excellent. Well, it's a good spot to wrap us up. I really want to thank uh, Veer, Jeff, Jr., Rob for joining me today. It's a quite a, a round table of of experience, a wealth of experience, and been an awesome informal conversation about some of the things that we experience. But in my mind, I'm trying to keep a list as we're talking of all of these sort of innovative ideas. You know, it takes tiered system to an entirely uh, you know next level sort of thought process when it can involve you know, folks with four by fours, right? Um, you know, prepping for the families and families of our employees. I, you know, it seems like an obvious thing, but something that definitely needs to be uh, memorialized and put in, into place from a protocol standpoint. You know, Veer's use of the AMBUS. We think about the AMBUS for every plane crash or train crash or, you know, MCI type incident, but that's, uh, you know, an amazingly innovative way to try to offload the system and to use something that's sitting, you know, use an asset that you have. So there's uh, tons to be learned here. I think, of, you know, formalizing this discussion and, and putting this into written form is, is probably going to be really helpful to everyone. So as soon as that happens, uh, we'll, we'll link that one up. We'll put uh, some other uh, links for some of the other products that we talked about here. Um, and again, thanks everybody for joining us. As always, if you have questions or concerns or ideas for future podcasts, email us at podcast at mchd-tx.org. As always, leave us a like or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And again, thanks, thanks everybody for joining us today. Hopefully it stays out like it is right now, 70 degrees and sunny. It's proper Texas weather. We'll talk to everybody again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.